Now, over these services, as we approach the Lord's Supper, as I put in the bulletin there, uh, I would like to look at this prophecy of Isaiah uh, four times. And as we read that there, I'm sure you felt, as I did, the solemnity and the seriousness of uh, this passage, the way Isaiah opens this long prophecy. And in this Western world, this is not the way that you would open your message about God at all. But Isaiah does that, and God leads him to do it. In fact, these aren't really Isaiah's words, as you saw. It is the mouth of the Lord that is spoken. So in Isaiah's day, God spoke this way to the people. And in this passage, we are brought into a courtroom. You'll see that as the passage opens, witnesses are called in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. And then he begins to speak to the people. And what's happening there is that the heavens and the earth are being called as witnesses. Witnesses to what the people are, but also witnesses to what the Lord himself is saying. You you can see it's poetic. He's calling upon the heavens and the earth to stand as a witness that they have heard what his voice has said, even if the people do not hear it themselves. And we're brought at the beginning of the book into a divine courtroom where the Lord God Almighty stands there as their maker, as their king and lord, and as their judge. And he begins to tell them that how they have broken his law and what they have become and that any infraction of a law in the state will always bring a charge from the state to the people, and that is even more true of God himself, that the way we live and what we are, each of our actions, is a moral thing, and it's brought before God, and it has consequences and these things. And we should not be surprised that we are brought to a courtroom here. It's not popular, obviously, in the world in which we now live, to think of God in this way, but this is who He is a Lord and a King with a law. He made us and he expects us to live righteously before him. And he brings basically here an indictment against the people for uh, the way they are living. And we must be aware of that even as we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, And we're going to see in the sermon what a a merciful thing Christ has done in his death. And... um, how the Lord's Supper expresses that mercy and salvation to us, and that's a beautiful thing. But we must never forget, even as professing Christians, uh, that a judgment is to come and that there is a, a courtroom. The Apostle Paul himself tells us that very clearly. Even when he's telling us of the mercies of Christ, he tells us in 2 Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or evil. And he says elsewhere, too, that it is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. So we must be aware, as we rejoice in the mercy shown in the Lord's Supper, and as we anticipate, if we are his, we anticipate his love and grace as Christ. But the one who loves us is a judge. And he cares about our lives, and he cares about the lives lived in this nation. 
And he is the rightful judge. And as merciful as he is, he stands at the end of time and brings all who have died before him. And he will pass a judgment upon them, whether they are in him or whether they have rebelled against him. And our eternal destiny, where we will experience and be for all time, uh, uh, the endless ages of eternity moving forward, will be decided on that day. It will be done and finalized on that day. And though no one out there or on the news or in your magazines or on, online and in what you are exposed to daily, though no one is telling you how close that is, how permanent that is, and how serious that is, nonetheless, that is the truth that God has told us. The Lord comes to his people who he's called here to be his special people, Israel. And he tells them uh, their condition. And as we approach the Lord's Supper, there's a, a couple of things I want to draw out from this chapter that I think will help us uh, prepare uh, properly and grow in Christ as we approach uh, this Lord's Supper uh, this coming week. We see in this chapter Israel's condition as a nation in verse 2 to 9. Uh, we also see uh, Israel's condition as a church in verses 10 to 15, in their worship and so on. And then in verse 16, 17, and 18, we are told the remedy for that great problem, to turn in repentance to God and to have our sins be purged out of us, to, be, to have the dye of scarlet and crimson removed from us and to be made whiter than the snow. So we have Israel's condition as a nation, Israel's condition as a church, and then the remedy in the gospel for these things. Let's just take these three as they come here. First, Israel's condition as a nation. I said to you there that this begins as an indictment. The witnesses are called in verse 2, the heavens and the earth, and God speaks um, in the courtroom. And he says, I have brought up, I have nourished uh, children... And they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people burdened with iniquity. Now, we're looking here at their condition as a nation. Obviously, Israel is a little bit different than our nation today. So there's a bit of crossover here because Israel was not only a nation as a state with a government and so on, it was also a church. Those were mixed into one in Israel. In our nation now, in the United States of America, these things are separate. We have the nation and the church as separate things. In Israel, these were kind of mixed together as one. Israel was a national uh, church. But he says, alas, sinful nation to Israel. And he says it to our nation too. And we don't look out there just and look at the people of this nation as this kind of idea, uh, we are included in that too. We are the people of this nation and the people who live on our streets and the people that serve us uh, in the grocery store and so on. These are the people of this nation. In the modern Western world, in the United States of America, people are in a certain condition spiritually as a nation. And it's, I would compare it here to exactly what God says to Israel. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden 
covered and weighed down with iniquity. He has nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now, God says that of man, that he is their rightful maker and owner, and they ought to know him. Every man and woman ought to know God. And just see that there in verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master, but Israel does not know, and my people do not consider. Now, I'm not speaking there of Christians when he says they're my people. Most of the people he's speaking to here are not saved. They're not born-again believers. There is a remnant in Israel that is born again. But the people God called to himself in Israel and gave the gospel and the law and revealed his covenant to them as a nation, you can see here by their behavior that most of them are actually not saved. But God still calls them my people. Now, Israel was his people in a special way. But I have no hesitation talking about um, the people of this nation in a certain way as that God can say to them, my people do not consider Yes, they're not in the covenant of the gospel with God. They are not adopted into his family. They have no special relationship to him that way. But the men and women of this nation cannot look at God and say, you are a stranger to us, we've never known you, because God has made them. They're made in his image. He gave them life. They do have a relationship to him as creature to creator. No one can say, I'm my own entity. I can decide for myself. I gave myself life and I will live my way. Because God has given them all these things. And man and woman are like an ox or a donkey. These animals that were in uh, Israel, these are not wild animals, but these are animals that are used to farm and so on. And they are owned by the farmer. They are owned by the owner and the master here. And Isaiah's just using this nice picture that he sees in the fields, and he's saying, well, even the ox responds to the farmer. The farmer puts the the yoke on the ox, and he uses the ox to plow, and when, when he shouts and gives various commands and pulls the reins, the ox knows it's used to the fact that it's serving the master, and it usually does what the master says and is guided by the master. Also a donkey that's used to travel and so on or to lay bags and other things and burdens on that these men and women used. The donkey gets used to its master and it knows it's owned and you can pull the donkey and lead it at various places and the donkey most of the time will just willingly uh, do that. An ox and a donkey knows I have a master and he may also have chosen these two animals because they're known also for their ability to be very stubborn when they want to be. A donkey can be very stubborn and rebel and pull away, and so can an ox. God says in one of the Psalms, Psalm 32, David writing about his repentance, and he says, Do not be like the ox or mule that do not understand and that must be pulled very hard in various directions. A stubborn ox is a very strong thing, and it pulls away from the master, and the master can't hold it in place. So these animals are owned, and these animals can be known often to be stubborn when they do decide just to walk off and these things. Now this is a picture of men and women. That men and women, though it's clear they have the image of God and a mind and morality, and they care about their families and they want to be happy and have a good life, 
They want to live. Uh, They want their life to have meaning and all of these things. And people tell them that evolution is true and that's convenient for them and they start to think of themselves as a kind of animal. But they know in the way they live that they're not just animals at all. They they even say, um, when animals are mistreated, they say that's very inhumane. They have no problem crushing an ant, but if 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 another animal is then abused in some way, even atheists will say, that was very inhumane. Now, the moment they tell you that, they're telling you that they know that humans are completely different, that humans have the image of God, and you can't just do whatever you want with humans. You can, you can go down to the grocery store this week and you can buy meat and these things and you'll think nothing of it as an immoral act. But if, someone, if a human being is attacked out there on the street, your response to that would be completely different. The fact that we have a, 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 a police department, the fact that we have a fire department and these things tell us immediately that we know human life is in the image of God and it's precious. People have this kind of awareness. But the point that... God is making through the prophet here is that though they have that and will live that way, they are less, and I mean this respectfully, less intelligent, spiritually speaking, than than an ox or a donkey. Because an ox usually is quite happy to be used for the way it was created. It's quite happy to plow the field, but man is not like that at all. God calls man to himself and says, be in relationship with me and serve me. And man, unless the gospel has touched him, unless the Holy Spirit has come into him, man pulls away and says, no. And women say, no. And then they choose to live as they please and they do not plow the Lord's field or serve the Lord's farm or bring forth the crops and the seeds and all of these things that the Lord wants for his fields and his land. They are rebellious. And Isaiah says to us in our sin, an ox is more obedient than you. A donkey has a better quality of life than you. Because a donkey does what it's supposed to do. And you're doing the opposite of what you are supposed to do. He says, my people do not understand and they do not consider. They do not enter in to an understanding of who God is and what he requires of them. Or what they are, what sin is, what life is all about. And what the gospel is and these things. And God speaks to them like a father here. This is not just a crushing judge in a courtroom to a complete stranger saying, I condemn you. He's saying, I I made you, and there's a way in which you are like my children. God has children because he's created them. Every man and woman, in a sense, is a child of God. Now, we don't mean by that that they're adopted into Christ's family or that they can call God Abba Father. They're not in an intimate relationship with the Father, They do not have Christ as their brother. That is a precious doctrine only for the people of God, the the born-again Christian, the Church of Christ. We especially can say God is our Father. But because God has made every man and woman, as he made Adam and Eve, and he said Adam was a son of God, that people, when they rebel against God, they're not rebelling against a stranger. They're rebelling against someone who gave them their DNA 
who watched over them in the womb, who gives them breath continually, and who cares for them in a certain way as a creature. That God does not willingly afflict the children of men. God is not cruel to man and woman. And he rains his reign on the just and the unjust and causes the sun to shine upon them. God views every man and woman in a certain sense as his own. They owe him their obedience and love because he made them in his image. He didn't just make the Christian in the image of Christ and his image. Every man and woman has a certain sense of the image of God. And in that sense, God can say, I've raised up children. They bear my image. They're like me. They have a mind and a spirit and a morality and a love. They have abilities that I've given them as image bearers of God. But they use these abilities instinctively for evil and the flesh and sin. And in that sense... God comes not as a condemning warrior king from another nation to man, but he steps into the courtroom as someone who's alienated from these children that he hasn't seen since they were born, like the prodigal son who hated his father and left and took um, the inheritance and squandered it. And then when he comes back, the man can see, this is the man who, this is the man who was my son. There's a son that didn't leave home, this is the one who did. And he remembers that is my child. I gave birth to him. I raised him. And so don't think of God here. As you read this, it's very strong, isn't it? It's it's very extreme, and God just doesn't... He cuts to the chase and just tells us what we are. But don't think of him as cruel and unreasonable, going around beating people up. He calls them into the courtroom, and he says, you should know me. You should love me. But your sin is so foolish and you're rebelling against me and you have become this sinful, corrupt nation that should know me, but you don't. And though I can say you bear my image, there's a way in which you look nothing like me at all. You have become an evil child in my sight. And when he condemns and offers them the gospel to draw them to himself, It's not as an enemy king in that sense. There is always a sense that God is willing to show mercy uh, and that he has the posture of, yes, a judge, but he is the father who is judge. And he's willing to draw any to himself who will repent, that they can then become his special children. Now, when he's saying all that, the ox and the donkey and the rebellion, and he calls them into the courtroom, He says throughout the rest of the chapter what the problem is. It's summed up in verse 4 that it's a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. That's telling us generally what the problem is in our nation. That's what's going on. But throughout the rest of the passage and the prophecy, we're told why this is so bad. For example, in verse 16 and 17, were given a description of the way they live. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings uh, from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. I could maybe ask someone at the back there to get me another cup of water. Is that okay? See in the verses there, 
Obviously, they're not doing these things. He only says seek justice because they're not being just at all. He's telling them to rebuke the oppressor because they're not doing that. The oppressor is rising very well in their society, and he gets on, and he lives very comfortably and gets everything that he wants. Defend the fatherless means that that's something they didn't care about. They didn't care if there was an orphan who had no money and no no one to look after the orphan. The widow was just left squandering, languishing, sorry. The, The widow's just abandoned and not cared for in a special way. This gives us a description of the kind of selfishness and the oppression and the exploitation that happens in man and woman when God is removed from the picture or made distant in the nation like the United States of America. When God's gospel is pushed to the side and made powerless and ineffective and made fun of and the church begins to behave like the gospel's a joke and that it doesn't really apply to people's lives and these things. When God removes himself in that way, um, what happens is man is just left to his own devices. Just look around in the society. Men and women are selfish. They oppress others. They exploit others. They don't care for the vulnerable. Uh, They don't behave in justice towards the vulnerable, and they don't behave in justice to those who have a just cause or who have been wronged in some way and these things. And see there, he says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. He's telling them to stop living in an evil way, and he doesn't say, but do good. He says, learn to do good. That's an awful thing. That they're... Evil is natural, evil is easy to us, uh, evil is native to us, and they're doing evil. And he, he doesn't just tell them, turn to God and do what's good. Because they've gone down this road and God's been removed from our nation, people can't just do good because it must be learned again. These things are lost when the church weakens over 100 years. People forget how to even do what's good. The church even forgets this. Important things in the church important doctrines, justification by faith, the glorious electing love of God, purity of worship, the holiness of the Christian life, uh, the, the bold witness of Christians that stand up in the nation and do not just go along with all this. All of these things become unlearned. And even when we try and do them, we do them very ineffectively, or some of these doctrines we only understand and sense in a very shallow way. Because the depth that the church used to have for these things has been lost. And when we lose something like that, we can't just click our fingers and expect it all to be back inside us. All of these things must be relearned. And that's tedious and tiring and it takes a long time. How careful we should be not to give up any inch to the world or any inch of the gospel God's given us. Because it takes so much time for us to relearn it. Our grandparents and then our parents, those generations, gave up certain things, just relaxed a little bit, did not pursue the truth of Christ. And we've inherited a gospel that has a lot of vagueness in it. We've inherited a Christian life that doesn't cost us very much. And most of the time, we don't even know what we should be doing. We must learn to do good. But the people's sins are in this indictment are brought before us here Violence is mentioned in the passage, your hands are full of blood. Immorality that leads to wanton sexual abandonment is mentioned in this prophecy. 
especially in chapter 5, um, that the women and the men are just behaving with wanton abandonment. That's an effect of the things I just said. There's a chain reaction here. And the last straw is always this wanton sexual abandonment. That's always the last straw in a society. That's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll notice that the Lord just labels them here. He tells them what they're doing wrong. And he said, if I had not left a remnant in the church, it would be just like Sodom. I mean, imagine that, saying that a church is like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That's the last port of call before complete unraveling of a nation. That these sins are embraced one by one. Then they become accepted and okay. And people keep pushing the boundaries. And then at last there is this redefinition of man and woman. Redefinition of marriage. And this wanton sexual abandonment that is not done in the dark. It's not hidden. There, there is no embarrassment about it. It is not only then done in the daylight. But then it is legislated for by the government as good. And I'm sure you're beginning to get the feeling that there's a large portion of the intelligentsia out there, the media and the liberal arts colleges and so on, that they've become so disturbed in their minds that they actually think these sexual behaviors are more noble than even traditional marriage and uh, raising children and being a husband and wife. That is now despised and homosexuality has now become the most noble thing that anyone can do in the nation. And changing your sex has now become the most noble thing you can ever do. I was watching a, an interview on one of the networks where they had a panel of people debating this thing. And this is what the person said. To declare that you are a woman is the most courageous thing a human being can do. That's the utter foolishness of men. Men are capable of great things. But when they fall into sin and God leaves the picture, they end up saying things like that. In a nation that sent soldiers to Normandy and so on, that has soldiers out in Afghanistan and Iraq right now who are slaughtered almost on a daily basis, and they sit in a TV studio and they say the most brave thing that a person can do is to come out and to declare uh, that you, you have changed from one sex into the other. That is the most courageous thing a man can ever do. And God says, you fools. When you're saying things like that, the door to hell is right there when things like that are said. Israel's condition as a nation is contamination, oppression, selfishness, violence, immorality, sexual immorality, and they become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we must be aware of this today, that we're surrounded by this like Lot was when he lived in Sodom. We're surrounded by it, and it's highly contagious and powerful and strong, and it can affect us. Um, as we approach the Lord's Supper, we have to consider where we stand as Christians in light of that in this sinful nation. All the sins I mentioned there are from the second table of the law. These are all sins that involve man relating to other men and women, uh, behavior and relationship 
in society, to not be just, to oppress others, to not care for the fatherless, the widow, uh, sexual relationships, uh, lying, uh, blood on the hands, abortion. All these things are part of that second table of the law that's, in, that's important. It's part of God's word and law to us. And as much as we, I've described for you there that we can look out there and say, look at how extreme these have developed in these people. As true as that is, and Isaiah is condemning it, when we're coming to the Lord's Supper, we're not to think of those people. We look at that and see it as dangerous, but we must consider our own hearts. The second table of the law applies to us too. And we may say, but I, I am just, or I have no blood on my hands, or I don't have that kind of wanton abandonment. Um, I do not oppress the widow and the orphan. But the whole point of the Lord's Supper is that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ must take this time as we approach it and just consider where we are. You may not have that kind of blood on your hands, but to be angry with your brother without cause, Christ says, is related to murder. It's a a form of it spiritually. Uh, uh, Resentment and hatred and these things. You may not be wantonly abandoned publicly, but there, you may have impure thoughts, uh, even if you're, if, you, if you're single, if uh, you've been following Christ for a long time, uh, you may be very mature and very uh, respectable in these things, but uh, there may be that uncleanness. Even if you're married, these things are possible too, for the husband and the wife. Now, we, we should not just single out the men, as though men have a special propensity uh, to that kind of sin. That used to be the case when the salt of the gospel still preserved the nation, say a hundred years ago, there, there was this check and restraint on men and women. And uh, a lot of women uh, didn't have problems with things like this. But without going into too much detail because of who's here in the room, uh, it is clear from all the surveys that have been done in the last 15 years that women are just as likely to engage in these kinds of things as men now. That's how we know we've become like Sodom. That even the women now, rather than protecting their families and loving their children and, and wanting to be a homemaker and things like that, they go out into the office world and they're very ambitious and they are just as bad as men now at going around and just living that way. And all the adults here that I'm speaking to, you know what I mean by this. Let's just be aware of these things. A Christian can be caught out by that initial temptation that will go into something like that. And if it's not checked... You know all this. I'm giving you the basics here. Sin just multiplies. And believe me, you are not stronger than your sin. Neither, I am. None of us are stronger than our sin. We all need the grace of Christ. So we must look at the second table of the law. As we come to the Lord's Supper, am, am I clean? Um, am I loving my brother and sister and my neighbor, even who's an atheist, and these things? Do I extort anyone? Um, Am I righteous in my dealings with property and money and these things? Am I truthful in the right way, speaking the truth in love, but only speaking when I'm called upon to speak, Um, speaking the right way, speaking the way Christ would have us uh, speak? Am I covetous? You can have a completely outwardly righteous life, and covetousness is quite a secret problem that you will see in someone's life they'll begin to desire for and grab and reach things and then begin to make decisions that prioritize uh, the acquisition of things and status and power 
are, am, am I covetous? Are you covetous? Do we have the right desires for the right things? Now, when we come to the Lord's Supper, a good practice is just to pick up the catechism that gives us a very basic explanation of God's Ten Commandments. It's written for our benefit. It's not the thoughts of men. There isn't a lot of commentary in it. That's just the opinions of men. The catechism is just a list of verses that are directly from Scripture that help us, that do the work for us, that when I think, what is stealing? I look at the catechism and it will give me about 40 examples of what stealing is. What is lying, really? It will give me lots of examples. Pick up a catechism, go online and get a PDF and just read through uh, those six commandments. And they, as Christ explained them on the Sermon on the Mount, they will open up. And we must examine ourselves as we come to the holy table of the Lord, that the one who died for us, that the one who purged our sins, that when we come to that table, it will be quite shallow, actually. If, if I stand there as your pastor and say, this was done for your sins, and you say, I believe that, but if all I have is the phrase in my mind, he died for my sins, it becomes quite meaningless, actually. What sins? What sins did he actually die for? And when he tells us to take the strength from the Lord's Supper and to be vitalized and stimulated by it and then to walk in a more holy way because of that strengthening that he gives and that cleansing, what I can't just say, I have to live a holy life and I implore you to live a holy life too. What does that even mean? We, we, we have to cease to do evil and learn to do good. I need to learn it, and so do you. We need to learn with more depth. What does it mean when God says, be holy as I am holy? What, what does that do, mean about my heart? So as you come to the Lord's Supper this time, and you, you say, alas, sinful nation, look at the nation I'm living in. Is it contaminating me in any way? Am I living as Christians have lived throughout the centuries? Uh, am I living as Paul and, and John and James and Jude have called us to live by the authority of God? Is that actually my life? Well, look at the Lord's commandments and look at what happens here when these commandments are just disregarded. Yes, a last sinful nation, but I bring to the Lord's table, and so do you, some of that sin. And I don't want to minimize it, maybe a lot of that sin. But the key is that you and I look at Christ and say, well... You died for my sins on the tree. And before I take the wine and the bread, before I do that, I am going to spend some time considering what exactly it means that you died for my sins. Because the sins of the last three months are included in that dying for sin. Not just the sin of your pre-conversion days, it's our sins. That's the condition of the nation. Then he moves it a little bit further to the condition of the church, and I'm going to spend less time on this. In the condition of, church, of the church in verse uh, 10 onwards just shows us that in Israel, this was not just a social problem, but a spiritual worship problem in the church. The things that are listed in those verses are not just the things you see out there. These are things that happen in the context of following and worshiping God. Just see what the Lord says here. He says in verse 11, what is the purpose of the multitude of your sacrifices to me? The sacrifices in worship, the bulls and the goats, these things God commanded that are good and that spoke of Christ. They're bringing these 
I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams, of the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. Uh, Verse 12, you appear before me, and you, who's required this of your hand? You trample my courts. Verse 13, you bring futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Incense was commanded by God as a beautiful thing that spoke of the priesthood and the prayers of Jesus Christ. A perfect, um, unique incense that God designed that was to be burned inside the temple and would go, it would burn, and the smoke from it and the aroma from it would go into God's presence. And it was beautiful. Um, And it spoke of the perfect heavenly priesthood and prayers of Jesus Christ. It's otherworldly. It's not the prayers of the people on the outside, but the prayers of the high priest as he's in the presence of God. And God delights in these prayers. But God says here, this is an abomination to me. Your new moons, Sabbaths, and assemblies, he says in verse 13. In verse 14, your new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They burden me. I'm weary of bearing them. Now just consider that, brothers and sisters, that the guilt of the society has been seen, but this guilt found its way into the church. It finds its way into our lives, or broad evangelicalism in this nation. There are hundreds of thousands of churches in this nation, and um, they have a gospel, and they are named after Jesus Christ. They confess the Father, Son, and Spirit. They use words like sin, forgiveness, uh, heaven, hell. There are lots of churches that bear the name Israel. And this sin has made its way right into there. The sin came into the society like a flood because those churches became utterly weak and ineffective and they lost their salt. They didn't condemn. The preachers are not roused. The membership is not held to a standard of life. The sacrament is changed. Things are brought into the sanctuary Various ways of worshipping are brought into the sanctuary and the quality of the people's lives just go like this and the church becomes very weak and kind of irrelevant in the town or the city. And people no longer walk down the street and say, oh, I better make sure I behave differently because the people from the church are there. Or there's a pastor that lives on my street or he's my neighbor and I I better make sure that I don't show him certain sins because that, that... person's a man of God, and I don't want him to see that I'm living like this. The church became so weak that now the people out there just shrug their shoulders and say, I don't care what the church thinks of me. I don't care what a minister or an elder thinks of me, and and these kind of things. The church became weak, and the sin flooded the nation. But the problem here is then the sins just go inside the church, like a flood when it comes in. You try and stop the water, but it will make its way into every room of the building. These people are still coming in the midst of this, seeing sin in their streets uh, and uh, in their judges and princes, their rulers, their senators, seeing sins at the, in the pubs and in the bars uh, um, and at nighttime and so on. They see these sins, but then these sins of covetousness, lying, begin to affect the Jewish people in their own homes, even when they're still outwardly living this way with, with these worships and so on. 
So it's in there. It's in the marital relationship. It's in the brothers and sisters' relationships. It's in the way they raise their children. It's in the way they do business. It's in what they buy. It's in the entertainment that they pursue and become obsessed with. It's in what they choose to do on the Sabbath day. It's in what they choose to do with the other six days God has given. All of this falling short and ungodliness affects all of us. And yet, they still sacrifice, give incense, they observe the festival new moons. That's just that the moon was full at a certain day of the month and they would have the festival on that day. God commanded that. They have special Sabbaths that end these festivals. And the people went enthusiastically to them. Feast of Tabernacles. We're there for seven days. We worship God in his temple. And at the end, we even gave him an extra Sabbath. That's what the people were doing. Ceremonies. Psalm singing. Psalm 118. Sung triumphantly around the altar and the walls of the temple by the people to finish the festival. Lighting the lamps. Eating the bread. Bringing their lambs to be sacrificed. They're doing it all enthusiastically. But it's all form. And it is not from the depths of the hearts of people who have come to know their sin and their desperate need of Christ and who come out of a deep gratitude and awe at the person and work of Christ, who are in tears and contrite and on their knees and who see the sacrament and the worship as great holy gifts from a holy and gracious God to be prized and prioritized and appreciated that they would then rise up from these worships and then live with a holiness and a fear and an absolute commitment to Christ and the Holy Spirit and to seek to not offend Christ and the Holy Spirit in any way. That's what happens when the heart worships in these things. But what we find here is that they have all the form of all of this, but not the heart. Is that you in any way? Approaching the Lord's Supper is the time to ask that, and if it's there in any way to put it right, I must do that too, every time. In what way are we singing the Psalms and um, coming to church and reading the Bible and hearing the word preached and interacting as brothers and sisters, and then living six days as a Christian, is it all formality and outward observance that does not engage the deep affections of the heart and acknowledging sin and confession and repentance and an utmost desire to reform even more and to live in a more gloriously holy and loving and righteous way before Christ? Jesus quotes Isaiah during his ministry when he looks at the Pharisees and he quotes another chapter of Isaiah and he looks at the Pharisees and he says, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. The Lord sees their temple and their regularity and their their tithe and their Lord's day and 
the way they approach all these things. And though he was the one that commanded these things and gave these things, he basically says to us, all that is useless without a real approach to the Lord's Supper that has self-examination, a realistic look at his law, a real desire to change, a personal hatred for sin in any form. That's what Christ wants. That he loves. A broken and a contrite heart I will not despise, Christ says. On this one will I look, he says in Isaiah at the end of the very prophecy. On this will I look, on him who has a broken and contrite heart and who trembles at my word. On him will I look in grace. Jesus delights in the imperfect service of a Christian but that has the authenticity and genuineness of one who really loves him and will do anything to cut off all that offends him and be washed and reconsecrate to him. Jesus loves that. But there's another person who's also outwardly doing all the same things as that Christian, and they don't have any of that going on in their heart. And God says to them in this passage, I am weary of your psalm singing. I'm weary of your listening. I'm weary of your prayers, he says. These people will pray every day. He even says in verse 15, they will make many prayers. What would you tell someone in this congregation or denomination or on your street who was passing you in the store and they said to you, you know, I've been going through a really difficult time. And you know they don't go to church. You know they live a certain way, that they're very covetous and materialistic. And they say to you, but I've been really praying to God about this. Do you say to him, oh, that's good? Do you say to that person, it's good that you're praying? Do you say to that person, oh, God will answer your prayers? God says here that when we have all form and no heart, we can bow down and go through the form and say, dear Lord, and list the ten things. It's the Lord that says, I will not hear, and I will hide my eyes from you, for your hands are red, he says, in verse 15. The word is Adam. Your hands are Adam. Adam's name meant red. He was made from the red earth, and God's saying, your hands, they're red because they have the guilt of sin on them, and you can't just come and pray to me as though everything's okay. These things, and I'm just leaving... Uh, this part here. These things are the first table of the law. All the things I listed in those verses there. We saw how man relates to other men. These things are, are more important, we could say. These are the first four commandments, which are how we relate to God. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we look at some of the actions we're doing, we also have to ask, where is my heart towards God? As described in the first four commandments very generally. But again, pick up your catechism. When it says, have no other gods before me, don't say, I've got that covered because I don't worship Allah. Pick up the catechism and look at the 20 or so things that it tells us is a breaking of that commandment. I have other gods before God, and so do you. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Enter into that. Try, read it, understand what that means, because there are many ways that you and I do take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not make an image or worship me in the wrong way. That means a lot more than we think it means. 
about our worship and the condition of our hearts. Read that commandment, try and understand it. And then the one about keeping the day, because the day is so important to the church's life and general sin, and the the Sabbath day is what sanctifies a whole nation. If the Sabbath day is maintained, if it's preserved, and the church keeps it uh, protected, and it affects the nation, once the nation is keeping the Sabbath day, that sanctifies a nation. It deals with so much sin, and so on. Look at the four commandments, brother and sister. As you say, Jesus is my Lord, and his blood was shed for me. And while we were yet enemies, Christ died for me. And I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, come to Christ at the table this coming week. But he is God, and he has revealed these things to us. The first table of the law and the second. Look at his Sermon on the Mount. He really cares about these things, brothers and sisters. And as I come and as you come, look at these two tables of the law and come to Jesus and say, Lord, let, let this all be opened out and let's see where I am. Show me from your word and by your spirit. Show me what I'm doing with the gospel. Show me what I'm doing with your name and worship. Show me what, what I'm doing with my love for you. Show me how much I love the cross and meaningfully see you there on the cross, wounded for me, purged for me, and scourged for me. Show me, Lord, what that means. Show me why you died. Help me understand, Lord, more of when it says that you took my sins upon you, and you were crushed for my iniquities. Show me what these iniquities are, so I can get rid of them. Show me the depth of your love, that you hung there and died and bore the wrath of God for the very things I've done, even the week before a communion. Don't you see, friends, that that is the greatest way to love Christ and and to truly know him? To come to him meaningfully and to know that if he died for you, to know what that meant for him and how now you should live. So there's the nation as, there's the the um, indictment of the nation, and then the church. I want to say something as we bring things to a close here about the remedy. What is the remedy? Well, God tells us in verse 16 and 17 that there is to be a contrition and repentance and turning to the right thing. That is always part of the remedy of dealing with our sin. When our sin is on us and we are laden with iniquity, laden with realizing the first table of the law and the second table of the law, coming to Christ anew in your life and realizing you're laden with certain sins, you must first see those sins and acknowledge them and and not like them and and be um, mourn over them and, and say, right, I'm going to turn from this evil and cease and I'm going to learn to do what's good and then I will begin to put in place the things I actually must do in behaving towards my brother and behaving towards God and Christ. Verse 16 and 17 show us that we are to realize the sinfulness of it and then turn and act in the opposite direction. So that's very practical. But that turning is only possible because of verse 18, which is the root of the remedy of the whole chapter. As sinful as these people are, God astonishingly astonishingly says to them, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're red like crimson, but they shall become as wool. 
That is the root of being able to identify our sins and turn from them. We must realize God's action towards us here. Now, this servant, Israel, is covered in wounds and sores and unclean and bruised from head to toe. He's filthy. He is incapable of being God's servant. And Isaiah introduces here in verse 18 a shadow of the servant he's going to paint for the rest of the book. When he says crimson, uh, crimson, scarlet, snow and wool here, he's telling us about a servant that's going to come for the rest of the book. Christ, the servant of the Lord, who will serve in covenant and die for sinners and purge their sins so that these people can be as white as snow. The shadow of Christ is right here. And look at God's reasonableness here. Look what what I said at the beginning of the sermon. He's not a tyrant. He comes into the courtroom. And what does God say to those who've rebelled? Come and let us reason together. God brings in the sinner and says, let's interact about this. Listen to me. Let's reason this together. Listen to me as I reason, God says. I've shown you your sin. Be reasonable, he says. Let's reason together. Is it true that you are a sinner? Are my charges false, he says? Is it not true that this is what the nation is like, that the church is like this, that your heart is like this? Is, is this not reasonable, God says? And he makes the person realize themselves that these things are true. God reasons with us. He gives us truth. He explains things to us and shows us clearly where we are wrong. But he doesn't leave us there. There's this astonishing promise and action that although this nation is polluted, although the people are polluted, they can be cleansed if they come to him, if they obey and are willing. This scarlet and crimson is not just red, but a very deep luster of red. These two colors are basically the same in the Hebrew language, scarlet and crimson. And this color is a reference to a dye that came from an insect, that was extracted from an insect. And the insect obviously produced this chemical that was a very deep dye. And it was very expensive, and they gathered the dye, and it was used to dye clothes and garments and fabrics in this luxurious crimson purple scarlet, a very vivid color for uh, royalty and the military and the rich and these kinds of people. And Isaiah knows this. His own king wore these things. Isaiah saw rich people in Jerusalem wearing this kind of thing, or even a military commander wearing this kind of thing. And Isaiah is, I'm just closing here, Isaiah is saying that the sins that have been described in nation, church, and in me and you, they're, they're not just painted on a little bit. These are striking and very clear guilty sins. And not only that, but they die deeply. They color us deeply. When you dye a garment with this dye, it goes into the wool and material and it completely covers everything and it deeply stains within the garment. You know what it's like if you spill something that has a stain. It's, very, it's much easier to spill it than remove it. 
And that's much more for these fabric dyes. You could take this purple robe of the king and take a scrubbing brush to it and scrub all day, and it's, it's not going to be any less purple. That dye is in there, and, that, and that's it. It has become part of the garment, and that's what sin does. Our sins are not little blots here and there on a garment. They are on the garment, and everyone can see them. God can see the sin. You can cover it and put things over it, but God says, it's purple, it's crimson, I can see the color, and it's deeply stained and dyed into you. The guilt of it is deeply dyed into you, and then the, the actual effect of the sin itself is deeply dyed into you. Our sins are in us at birth and the stain is there and they're, they're a deep part of us. We can barely feel, think, or act with, without them being part of it. We are a deeply dyed sinful garment. That's the picture here. Vivid guilt, vivid stain. And God says to us, as we close here, God says to us, the servant, the suffering servant, my servant whom I will send, he will come And by his work and his death, he will take what it is impossible to clean. And he will take a dye that is impossible to remove. But once he purges the guilt of your sin, that no man and you can ever remove from your heart, when Christ washes it and deals with it, all the dye will be gone. And the garment will be as white as the wool with which it was sown. A promise to those who, are, who rebel against God and who, who provoke him and who live selfishly and don't listen to him. He reasons with them and calls them. And you and I as Christians coming to the Lord's Supper this week, let us look at that Lord's Supper and anticipate it, that it pictures for us very powerfully that this dye, this stain, can be removed as David's was. Yea, wash thou me, and then I shall be whiter than the snow. My worship, my use of your name, my use of the time you give me, my love and attitude to brothers and sisters and neighbors, the way I deal with things, the desires of my heart, the way I speak, the way I think, I can see all too well that every one of these is easily I can see already the list beginning to categorize itself I am stained and Jesus says though your sins be on you like scarlet and crimson they shall be white as snow and as wool wonderful beautiful perfectly white do you want that do you want that as a Christian that you keep coming to him to put these things right and you cling to that promise and then you're in awe of the cross. The cross is so powerful, it removes legal, moral guilt stains from the human soul. What a glorious gift God has given us that we are not condemned in Christ, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And if any of us sin, we have an advocate in the courtroom with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Whether we come this week as those who love the Lord and who need to approach this and engage it, or if we come 
as someone who does not yet understand these things or know and love Christ as the beautiful husband, yet you know, my dear friend, that your heart has these sins. And my question to you this week is that if you know you have these sins, do you want them to be purged out like dye so that your heart and soul can be white? Amen.